0: This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. Hello, I'm your host Mike Gelb and this is the Consumer VC Podcast where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying this show, also subscribe to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fun vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey. From your first syndicate to offering a multi-million dollar venture fund if you're interested in investing in startups stick around after the episode where i chat with gabriel shin from the Vobin from carta team who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from carta can get you set up the link to Vobin from carta's website is in the show notes our guest today is deepak Shadapurai, founder and managing director of dsg consumer partners DSG Consumer Partners is India and Southeast Asia's leading consumer-only venture capital fund. Some of their investments include Viva, Piccolo Organics, and the Golden Duck. We focus this conversation on what makes India an exciting and different consumer market than the US, why Indian premium consumer brands are ripe for growth, and why Deepak went from investing at the growth stage and later stage to investing in the earlier stages. Without further ado, here's Deepak. Deepak, we made it happen. You're here on the show. We made it happen. So excited. Thank you so much for coming on. How
1: are you? I'm very well today from a very rainy Singapore as I look out the window.
0: Oh, well, it's actually been very rainy here in Los Angeles too. We've gotten like, um, actually like crazy weather for LA, for LA, mind you, but, um, but, but pretty, pretty crazy weather over over the past few weeks. Um, let's start from the beginning. Why consumer? What was your first consumer investment and, and what kind of attracted you to, um, I know it's a large category, but 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 uh, consumer brands um, s- specifically? You
1: know, I, I think you, you use the right word. I stumbled upon it as opposed to having planned to do it. Uh, I think the first consumer investment I ever made in a professional capacity, forget about some angel stuff I used to do, uh, was in 2004 uh, when I invested in what was then a a very nascent, small startup, sort of uh, making wines in India. So it was a uh, uh, insurgent brand in the wine category. It was the third ever brand in India launched in the wine category. Uh, and uh, it start, was started by a friend of mine. And uh, when uh, so he's sort of born and brought up in India, uh, went to Stanford, studied engineering, worked with Oracle in Napa, uh, came back to India and... Said, I want to do something different. And he said, India is the third largest grower of grapes. So the grapes, the Thompson seed, this grapes which get exported globally, the green grapes we eat everywhere. And he says, clearly, this climate that works. He went back to UC, uh, did a course on winemaking and, and viticulture, and realized that the geographic region and the soils were very good. But India did not have any sort of uh, great varietal. So he, he took cuttings from California, Chenin, Chardonnay, and just planted it. And that's where it started. Uh, at that time, uh, when I first met him, I was working as a consultant in Bain. Uh, and then after, after I left Bain, I joined a technology venture capital firm called Reuters Venture Capital. And my job was to make technology investments. So my boss sent me off to India. Uh, I met Rajiv. Uh, in, and I couldn't find much that excited me about tech. Uh, wasn't my thing, so I'm a lawyer and an accountant by training. So uh, don't actually have a real tech background, and so start, got to know Rajiv. I thought what he was doing was very cool. After four years of doing tech VC and spending a lot of time in India, I realized there were a lot of tech VCs chasing too many deals in India. And this is 2000 to 2004, uh, but there were there was no institutional fund, not even one that would even look at investing in a CPG brand. So, I had left RVC. I raised my own fund for the first time uh, in 2004. And the first deal I ever did was um, invest uh, $3 million in this, what I hope will become a big winery. Uh, Keep in mind, right? So, people who know wine will say, Where's India? India doesn't make wine. It makes zero sense. Uh, So, that's where it started. I learned a lot from being on the board. I was on the board for 17 years. Uh, and that's where it started right and I got the consumer bug and I've been doing mainly consumer since 04 and only consumer since 2012. Wow that's
0: that's awesome um, I love that story so you kind of went to India or your um, for the firm that you're working with you were actually supposed to like make technology investments you thought it was maybe oversaturated in in tech when it came to India and there was an, uh, there's an opportunity within investing in consumer brands that no one was paying attention to um, and so so, you kind of shifted and pivoted. You ended up then starting, obviously, DSG um, as a result.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think shifting and pivoting is the wrong word. So, I, in 04, I said, There's something here. I said, I don't know if it's going to be a full time career. Uh, so, I, I, I raised a small pot, a sort of small pool of money in 2004. We've made five investments over two years only in consumer brands. So, we invested in Sula Wines, which is now a large market-leading wine brand in, 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 in India. It went public uh, in December, very profitable, pays a dividend. It's now listed uh, on the Indian Stock Exchange. Uh, I invested in a art auction house. Um, so think of Christie's or Sotheby's, but the equivalent for India called Saffron Art. Uh, I invested in a company called Baker's Circle, which is an uh, uh, institutional B2B supplier of frozen bread. So we don't have a consumer brand. The thesis was we'll do institutional and consumer, uh, but the founder did such a good job in sort of institutional sales. So you, if you walk into a Burger King or a McDonald's or a Subway in India, uh, you're likely to be eating one of our products. So we make it for all the big brands. We, ha- we don't have our own brand. And to be honest, we tried launching our own brand in parallel. And this particular founder is just so good at B2B that he never succeeded in B2C. Uh, and we invested in a, um, a company called Clear Trip, which was at that point one of the two uh, Expedia lookalikes for, for, for India. Uh, there were two uh, Make My Trip, and the second one was Clear Trip. So made four investments, all with consumer facing brands other than Baker Circle. Uh, And the thesis was that the Indian consumer is going to start sort of patronizing more local brands, made in India, for India. Uh, There's some categories where we felt that you can't have a local brand. Think of Google. Google everywhere is Google. Uh, But but for for, for more traditional packaged goods, we thought the strongest brands would be Indian brands or, or domestic brands, whichever market you invest in, building for that demographic that for for that user base. That was the broad idea. It wasn't I'm pivoting. Uh, I had an idea. So we made four or five investments uh, in 04 and 05. Um, I then, and that was under a fund called Jam India, which I founded, which was a precursor uh, to DSG. Uh, Two years into it, I was approached by a friend of mine who was setting up a a sort of a mid-market private equity fund. He said, why don't you join me? Uh, Do your consumer, but do a little more. And uh, we raised $200 million. I then packed my bags. I was living in in London in those days. Uh, I had never lived in India in my life. I was born and brought up in Singapore. So I packed my bags, my wife, uh, my seven-month-old son, and we moved to Bombay in July 2007. And I spent six years in Bombay uh, managing a 200 million dollar sort of mid-market growth fund that did a uh, consumer infrastructure which my partner ran and financial services which I ran so did that for six years and this was the first time I was sort of lived in India full-time uh, my son went to school there uh, my second child my daughter was born in Bombay so six years of full-time India immersed myself and really got to know India really well as opposed to being a Uh, someone living in in London visiting India every month. Uh, And those six years sort of validated what I hypothesized earlier on, that the Indian consumer was coming of age, uh, GDP was growing, disposable income was sort of, hasn't got to a point where there was a huge increase in discretionary spending, but you could see it coming. Uh, And half of my time in my six years was looking at consumer deals. Uh, fast forward to 2012 for very personal reasons, uh, my wife and I decided to move back to Singapore, uh, where, my, where I'm from, uh, to spend time with my parents. Uh, so I came back to Singapore in 2012, had a chance to recalibrate, and decided to go all in. So by this time, the deals I sort of invested in, in, in 2004 and 2005, the travel company, the, bake, the bakery ingredients company, Sula wines had all exploded. They had all grown between five and ten x in top line, uh, and two of them had become the number one brands in that category in India. So that sort of validated my hypothesis. But keep in mind, these were 04 and 05 investments, and I was looking back in at December 2012. So these were six, seven, eight years into my journey, and that sort of confirmed the fact: to build a consumer brand, it takes a decade. So got back to Singapore. Uh, I said, "Let's do this properly." Uh, so started DSG Consumer Partners. Uh, when we did this, we were the first fund in India, a first VC fund in India, to have consumer in the name. Uh, there was no fund looking exclusively at at CPG or consumer more broadly. Um, some of my friends who run other venture funds questioned the thesis, saying, "Deepak, you know, are you sure it's big enough?" or Exciting enough to have a fund doing nothing but that. Uh, Went to sort of my early backers who backed me in the 04 and 05 when I was doing my first bunch of consumer deals. uh, Raised a very small fund, only $12 million, uh, and then got to work. So fund one was $12 million. Uh, We made 21 investments across three years. So so 2013 to 2016, uh, 2013, 2014, 2015 on average seven deals a year. Uh, and that was the start of DSG was the first formal sort of portfolio. And since then we've raised capital every three years. Uh, we raised fund two in 2016, fund three in 2019 and fund four last year. So it's, 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 it's grown since then. Uh, but that's where it started.
0: No, that's, that's really helpful. That's really helpful. And I, I would say, you know, I guess backing up a little bit in terms of you had this insight where you thought the Indian consumer would invest in, sorry, not invest, would would buy um, from Indian brands from brands that actually were started and were homegrown in India. What specifically? Uh, Because I know that you're an accountant, you work for Bain. You um, was specifically on. Was there a particular like metric or statistic that you were kind of interested in that you that kind of confirmed that okay, maybe maybe this actually could happen, or or was it just like a um, uh, just like a hunch or 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 how did you think about that?
1: I, I think let's simplify. Let's break it down into a sort of the demand and supply side. So. Whilst I was living in London and traveling to India, I saw an opportunity because there were a lot of gaps in the market, right? Because I would come, I was living in London, I would come to India on a business trip and I would go to the supermarket or to a store. i said, why can't I buy this? Why can't I buy that? This is what I need. And I moved to India full time with a young baby and then had my second child. Uh, And keep in mind, my wife and I had never lived in India before. We expected to find things at the grocery store, at the drugstore, at the pharmacy, which we were used to in in Singapore and London. And suddenly, when you want to buy cold brew coffee, no one's heard of it. You want to buy you want to buy a hypoallergenic cream, no one's heard of it. You want Greek yogurt with lots of protein, they've heard of it, but you can't get it, right? So there was a clear gap in the market of products and services that we were used to in the West. The question then was. So what? The fact that you don't get it here, do, does the Indian consumer even care? Right? So, just, right. so what, what, what I then, over those over those six years, I just spent time, got to make a lot of local friends, uh, and got to know India, at least the urban India, really well. I I, I, I do not know rural India very well. Uh, India is 1.4 billion people. When I say India, my India is 300 million people who live in 10 big cities. Uh, who travel a lot, uh, many of whom go abroad to study, uh, many of whom sort of work around the world. I mean, You you live in the US, you've seen the number of Indian CEOs of the largest companies in the US. Uh, And Netflix and Spotify and technology and social media changed everything. The world became flat. So Netflix made sure that what you watch in LA is what I watched in Bombay the same day. Uh, Same thing with Spotify. So information started moving very quickly. Uh, we also saw in 2010, 2011, 2012 the reverse migration. So most Indians were leaving India in the 90s, 2000s for a better life abroad. Uh, as the Indian domestic economy picked up, a large number of those, including the founder of Sula, who was who went to Stanford, worked at Oracle, could have done anything. Said, you know what? I'm going to go back to India because I think the next two decades will be India's sort of best time. Uh, and these guys who had spent a decade or, or, or more abroad came back and they were used to a particular sort of ability to buy and consume. Uh, so that was the demand side. On the supply side, what was interesting was although many of the products and services I spoke about wasn't readily available in mainstream shops, there was a huge parallel market. So in each city in Bombay, in Delhi, there were these shops or markets that only sold products that were imported. So they would they would in they wouldn't go through the they wouldn't go to an official distributor because there wasn't one, but there would be people either in LA or in London or in Australia or in Dubai or in Singapore sending pallets of products, right? Because I'll give you a real example. So you know, my, my child had very sensitive skin, prone, um, so and we wanted to have particular skin cream. Couldn't find it in India. There was a market who would bring in Mastella from the UK, triple the price because there was enough demand that the official channels weren't fulfilling. So I said, demand clearly is there. Uh, Supply is broken. Uh, There were importers who saw that demand and bringing it on the site, very high margins. I think over the next 20 years, this is going to sort of clean up. Uh, And instead of importing many of these products, many of these products could be made in India are uh, localized for the Indian consumer because Indian skin is different, pigmentation is different. They, they eat different things, they like different flavors. Uh, so the whole, the whole need sort of to sort of, sort of bring it in the grey market is not required. The other big change was up till fifteen or twenty years ago, there was a conception that anything made in India wasn't as good as anything made in anywhere else. So if you bought a bottle of wine, and and I, this is what I saw firsthand. So we. We launched Sula. Sula launched in 2000 before I invested. And I saw Sula's growth in the the first decade. And particularly in the first five years, it was very difficult convincing a sommelier or a general manager of a restaurant to stock Indian wine. Uh, And he would say, no one would drink Indian wine if I have a guest coming in. They're used to Australian or French or Californian or Napa or Sonoma. How do I tell him that this wine from Maharashtra is any good, it's just not local, it's not, we don't do this stuff. Uh, it's changed now, and but the perception was that if it's imported, it's much better. Right. In, in the last 20 years, that's changed. Uh, the, the millennials and the younger Indians are very proudly Indian. Uh, they believe that India can be as good as, if not better, uh, in most categories, uh, given how big a country we have and what we can do. And it was ripe for brands to come in and sort of build for India. So that was the thesis. And that's all we back. If you look at my playbook 10 years ago and my playbook today, we want to build brands in India or Southeast Asia. Let's talk about Southeast Asia later on. uh, That is being built for the Indian consumer, uh, where India is big enough a market where we don't have to export anything. So instead of buying, I'm going to throw up a random example, right? Instead of buying Heinz ketchup because everyone knows Heinz, there should be no reason we can't build a brand of ketchups or sauces uh, made in India for the Indian consumer with the Indian palate and the Indian storytelling and the Indian brand. Okay, Heinz is not Indian; it's big, it's very visible. Uh, so that was the thesis, uh, and 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 we said. We can't compete with the Unilevers and the Nestle's on on price, on everything. So let's enter the premium category. And why premium? Because the people in the premium segment, which represents 2% of India, were already buying imported imported items from the gray market. So they said, we don't like the locally made ketchup or we don't like the locally made whatever. Uh, I'm going to buy products imported from the US or Australia from the shops I told you about and pay a high premium. So as we started DSG, we said, let's back brands who are going to build products as good as the best products in the world, but make them in India and price them at the premium to any Indian made product. So we weren't going against the masses. We don't want to compete with the guys who are competing on price, but let's convince the Indian consumer that we are the best made in India product. And we are as good as anything else you import and let's build the packaging the storytelling and the price so almost every brand we invested in uh, in the first five years at the time of launch we were the most expensive made in india product because to get that to position your product as the best in class you can't be cheaper than something else okay and these are the big fights i had with some of my ceos and some of the head of sales of my companies because it's a pack. no one's heard of our brand We are launching next week and you want me to go to the retailer and the distributor and tell them this product that no one's heard of is more expensive than the current market leader. I said, yes, because we are much better than the current market leader. Do a blind tasting, show him the backup pack, no gunk, no colors, uh, real tomatoes as opposed to tomato and pumpkin and other flavorings. And and, uh, let's see what happens, right? There was a pushback. Uh, the retailer or distributor will keep, he'll buy one cotton of 24. And we said, keep it. Let's see what rate of sales you get. Let's see what the offtake is. If no one buys it, then you know no one buys it. Uh, if, if people buy it, just call us up and we'll uh, sort of send you a, a next case or a next pellet. And that's how we began it really small, educating the market. And in many categories, we even took a bigger bet, which was introducing a new category to India. Uh, Because if you win in a category introduction play, you become synonymous with the category. Okay, what might go wrong is that the category may have no relevance in India, but we've done it for four, five, six, seven times. Um, uh, We've not always made it work, Uh, but where it's worked, it's become literally, I mean, if if you speak to anyone in India uh, and ask him, you know, which is the best Greek yogurt brand, I'll be shocked if they don't say Epigamia, because there was no Greek yogurt in India till we introduced it. No one understood what it was for the first two years. We spent a lot of time communicating what it was. Uh, fast forward today, if you're in Bombay or Delhi and you walk into any grocery store, there'll be 10 brands of Greek yogurt of every shape, size, form. Uh, but everyone, including our competitors, will say they wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for Rohan, who created uh, Epigamia
0: no that's that's really helpful and useful so what was it like um going from investing in mid market companies like what was what was kind of like your average check size from um from that standpoint moving into um you know 12 million uh uh 21 investments um uh, investments in a in 12 million dollar fund I imagine your check size was what like 300k or 400k average um per one so what was that kind of like and 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 how did you kind of Um, what was also kind of like your diligence process later
1: when you, when you started DSG fund one, I I think moving from beacon, which is the mid-market fund to to DSG was very different, but keep in mind that I had done, I've been doing venture investing as a principal, uh, since 2000. So I've been doing it for, I've been doing it for 12 years before I started DSG. Uh, and prior to that at Bain, I spent 75% of my time at Bain in the private equity group. Uh, working on deals with TPG, KKR, Blackstone. So I've been exposed to investing from buyouts. Got it, all All the way way
0: to to early stage.
1: Okay, Okay. all the way to early stage before I joined the growth fund or before I co-founded the growth fund. So having done that and after the growth fund, I then look back saying the, the time I had the most fun, forget about everything else, right? I had the most fun in 04 and 05 when I was backing consumer founders Uh, Many of them pre-revenue, pre-product. And Sula was the latest stage. Revenue was $3 million. Okay, I I had been there when there was a team of anything between one and 20. Uh, I would sort of spend time, shoot the breeze with the founders. I got involved in packaging, tastings, pricing, and I had a lot of fun. The fact that I made money was great. Uh, So I knew I could support my family by doing it. But I actually had fun. When I was doing my growth buyout stage in India for six years, every deal was, you're right, every check was between 10 and 15 million. Uh, Every deal would have an advisor or a banker. He would pitch to 20 funds. Uh, There would be a process. there will be a data room. And it wouldn't be one-on-one, right? There was no proprietary deal flow. Uh, I learned a lot, but I had no fun. It It wasn't miserable, but it wasn't as fun as speaking to Rajiv at Sula. He had planted, you know, he had launched four varietals. He's the Chenin, the Sauvignon. And in those days, our reds were not of the quality they are today. They're really good today. And I'm proudly, happily drink them. But in the early years, the product needed a lot of work. uh, And the labeling needed a lot of work. And, you know, those were the discussions I really enjoyed. So when I moved back to Singapore, uh, I was 43 then when I moved back. And I've been working for 25 years, and I said, you know what? I've got another 20 years of really hard work in me, and I want to do something I really enjoy. So DSG was designed as as a project. Fund one had no institutional investors. Fund one was family and friends, um, mainly the investors who backed me in 04 and 05. Because by this time, the Sula wine, the Clear Trip, the Baker Circle had all. So that. That original 04 05, I, I, I put $15 million to work. I made about four and a half X. I given the money back. Uh, the investors were happy. Uh, and they said, Deepak, you clearly stumbled onto something in 04 and 05. You're doing it all over again. So we'll back you again. So that was how DSG started. Uh, friends and family, there wasn't even one investor who hadn't known me for at least a decade in that fund. I didn't even try and pitch it to anyone. I'm like, guys, I've done it before. Uh, most of you were there on the original journey. Most of you were not on the growth journey with me because that wasn't what excited you. I'm coming back to do what I did in O4 and 5 4 and O5 was an experiment. And this time I'm going to go all in. Uh, let's see what happens. It's 10 years later. Uh, I think India is more ready than it was initially. Uh, so let's do it. So to walk me through a little
0: bit investing in the early stages, uh, you know, all the way from, you know, 12, uh, your first fund of $12 million, all the way up to your most recent, uh, um, excuse me, fund number four. Um, walk me through a little bit about your due diligence process. What, what types of attributes does a company need to be at um, in order for you to be interested in terms of the actual size of the company?
1: Okay. I mean, let's split it up, right? So um, we invest in, I mean, well, let's call it seed or pre-seed, whatever you want, right? There's a category of companies where your product is not yet in the market, and you may not even have a product ready. Uh, and I'll give you the example of the first deal we did in Fund One. It's a company called VEBA. V E E B A. It's sort of like a Heinz, it, it makes sauces and emulsions. Uh, it's a very big business now. But when I invested in VEBA, there was no brand name, there was no product. The company wasn't even incorporated. Uh, I had met the founder in 04. Uh, when he was running another company uh, in the same space called Fun Foods. Uh, this was the same time as I made the Sula investment. I said, you know what? I think is there's an interesting category in the sauce space. Uh, I just invested in the industrial bakery business, uh, and, we, and we supply all the bread to Subway, even today. So if you ever eat a Subway sandwich in India, 100% of all the bread at Subway, which is a lot of bread, comes from us. So every Subway bakes its bread on, on premise. So Subway has an... Uh, as a combi oven where you bake it. It, but it, come, it comes in a frozen shape that looks like a pencil. Uh, it's, you proof it and then you, and, and then you bake a bread. But that frozen dough comes from us. And in, as part of my diligence when I did that deal in, in 04 was to go and speak to Subway. I said, this is what we do. You guys supply bread to us. I said, what else do you buy? I said, our biggest spend is on sauces. So you go to Subway, you have the meat, you have the vegetables, you have got the cheese, and then you have 20 different sauces. And I said, great. You know, if you're buying a lot of bread, you're going to be buying a lot of sauces. So I said, who supplies your sauces? He said that there are only three companies in India. These are the three. I went to meet all three of them, um, and in that process, I met Viraj, uh, who was in the same space. And I said, you know, can I invest in your business? His dad was running the business at that point, and they said, no, we don't need outside money. We are sort of bootstrapped from day one. We're profitable. Don't need your cash. Uh, Three years later, the dad sold the business to Germany's Dr. Otka. And prior to closing the sale, uh, I spoke to Viraj. I said, I, I said, I think you're making a mistake. You know, it's good money. Your dad will sort of retire on this. But I think India's consumption hasn't even started. It's going to be 50x in 25 years. So, but anyway, the transaction happened. Um, he had to go, he had he, he became the CEO of the business, worked with the uh, Dr. Otka for three years and then he left when his non-compete ended and we kept in touch i said you know your dad's happy he's retired he's written a book i said what are you up to now he says well he said Deepak, i think you were right it was way too early to sell i said let's do it again i said they were doing something very different they were doing something mass market very successful brand Uh, why don't we do something solely focus on wellness better for you same category uh, but as consumers become wealthy, they just want better quality, functional. It's like a lot of the guests you have on your on your on your podcast. Right. Uh, and one and I, I had many role models or many sort of. Uh, companies, I was sort of saying we could do a bit of this, a bit of that. Uh, and one of them was Primal Kitchen. You know, sort of Primal Kitchen was very functional. But the whole idea was let's launch a range of products Uh And we said, let's not do something that's already made in India on the shelf. So at that point, first deal, I said, let's not go and compete with everyone on the shelf. You'll be the 10th sauce or ketchup company. So let's launch a portfolio of products uh, that Indians already know, but they can't buy on the store easily. Uh, And by this point in 2012, Subway had become very successful. It's been in India for over a decade. Had hundreds of outlets. So everyone knew what Chipotle sauce was, they knew what ranch was, they knew what Southwest was, uh, but you couldn't buy it easily. Uh, and if you could, they were imported from the US, and it was very expensive. Uh, and because it wasn't brought in officially by a distributor, often the expiry date was a one month away. So we said, Indians now know this category, they go to Subway a lot. But if someone wants to recreate a sandwich or a sub or a taco, they can't get this anywhere. So we, if you if look back, you can Google it. The first launch of Viva, I think was only seven SKUs. And every SKU was new to the Indian market. The most common product we had was mayonnaise, but it was India's first ever 100% olive oil mayonnaise. Uh, and it was made without egg. It was a sort of, it was mayonnaise, but it was much better, uh, no gunk, only olive oil. Uh, and that's how we started. And our products were by far the most expensive. And our packaging was very novel for India. It was sort of uh, not the tiny, squeezy ones. It was a big, because our, our products were chunky. It was a mixture of salad dressings and sauces. Uh, so that gives you an example of, we sat down together, we had a hypothesis. We then spent two days trying to figure out what we call the company, because I want, he said, Deepak, let's call it this. I said, that's, that's, that's rubbish. And he, so we then actually, so I took him to Sula. So I said, why don't, and Sula by that point had built a beautiful winery and a resort and a hotel, very Napa-like. So I took Viraj to, to spend two nights with me at the winery. I said, Viraj, this is what Rajiv has built from nothing. Uh, he's now a very large business, very profitable. He's got a hotel, he's got a visitor center. And then we still spent, we, we couldn't come up with the name. And on the last day as we were leaving the winery, and he said, Deepak, why did why did Rajiv uh, call the business Sula? He said, well, Sula's his mother's name. So he just wanted to have a tribute to his mom. Then he said, Deepak, that's a damn good idea. So I'm gonna call my next company uh, after my mom, which is Viba. So we went back to Delhi. Uh, we then went to the registry of companies, registered the company, and then we spent a month driving around Rajasthan to look for a piece of land uh, to buy to build a factory. So again, so in that example, we it literally was business building with the founder. So there we look for a, it's all about the founder and the team, uh, and a coming together of minds on a category we think could be very big. So I would say that is 25% of what we do at DSGCP. Long way of answering your initial question of what do I look for in a deal. So we look for people who are excited to build a category with us so that's 25% there the diligence is on the founder either what he's done in the past uh, in, in in viraj's case he had been in a very similar industry before uh or and what the category is like today and our view of what the category category could be like 20 years from now uh, the next 25% of our deals are the companies incorporated he knows he wants to be in the pet business, or he knows he wants to be in the uh, baby skincare business. Uh, he or she, uh, but they haven't launched yet. There's no packaging. Uh, the brand, there may or may not be a branding. There've been one, two, there are four companies we've invested in in the last four years, three years, where companies incorporated. The founding team is there. They had a brand name, which we thought was awful. Okay. We then, before <laughs> launch, but they hadn't launched and no one knew the brand name existed, right? They had, yeah, we were like, dude, uh, have you done any focus groups? Have you spoken to anyone? It's like, no, 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 we just, we, we really like it. So we said, guys, this is why we don't think it's going to work. Um, let's help you do focus groups uh, and let's play around with it. And then we actually came up with a name. So I, the most recent example is a company called, uh, we we backed a pet, a pet, a pet sort of a broad pet platform that does pet services, pet food, uh, and a, sort of a, a pet related products. Uh, it, it's called SuperTails. Uh, that's the name of it. Name of it today. So I won't tell you what the name was before they before we renamed it. But, okay, so that's why we like to get in early, right? Get in as early as we can, uh, making sure that the founder is totally aligned about the category. The mistakes we've made in the past is founders who find a big category but are not passionate about it, and we've done quite a few of those, end up not doing so well for us. Because so they found the category, they know it's going to be big, they know they can make a lot of money, but they don't, they really don't love the category. So that's the biggest learning over the last eleven years. So we, we really need to believe that this is what do you really want to do, as opposed to to, your, to you doing it just to make money. So real affinity. Uh, with the category. And then we spend a lot of time on the category. The third bucket is where there's a product, there's a team, the the product's been launched, uh, but revenues are sub a million dollars. So you have a few SKUs, uh, maybe D2C only, or only in one city, or in a small part of a one city. So you have launched, you bootstrapped yourself, uh, and you have some traction. You could be doing, you know, $50,000 a month, $100,000 a month, um, but still very early. Uh, And there we said, we look at the product, we look at the team first, we love you, you, we know you're passionate, we look at the product, do we like the product? And product is defined as, do we like what's inside the product, the liquid or or, 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 or what's being consumed? Do we like the packaging? Do we like the brand? Do we like the brand story? Uh, Do we like the pricing? Uh, If we don't like it, what would we change? We then discuss it with the founders. Um, And this is like, guys, you you go to $100,000 a month, but we think for you to really scale, you've got to change a few things or a lot of things. And this is why, and this is your company. Let's debate this. Uh, If he is not open to any feedback, we're like, guys, we're the wrong partner for you. If he's open to feedback, we engage and we don't expect him to listen to everything at all. Uh, but we want him to engage uh, because most founders in any category they're passionate about is going to know 10x of what my team or I are going to know anyway. So we have a macro viewpoint, having done this for a long time, but we don't have a micro viewpoint on cold brew coffee specific. Okay, so we want him to push us back as well and tell us this is why we think, Deepak, you're wrong or your team's wrong or we disagree. Um, so, so and because he's got some revenue we start looking at kpis and the most important kpi to us for a company that's already has revenue uh, is capital efficiency so capital efficiency to us uh, is defined as total capital raised to date it could be just the founder putting his money in or, or, or some family and friends or he may have done a seed round before us raised i don't know half a million dollars really depends so we look at capital efficiency Uh, And that's defined as total revenue raised to date and your current ARR. So if you raised raised half a million today to bootstrap you to where you are uh, and you're doing uh, $100,000 a month means your ARR is 1.2 million means your capital efficiency is 1.2 million over half a million, which is 2.2 Got it. Got it. How well you've used capital you've gotten to date to get your business to where you are today. Again, it's a very powerful matrix, a very powerful KPI, uh, but it is very different for each business, each category, and and, and, and and sort of how capital intensive your business is. If you're capital light, you're more likely to have a higher, or you should have a higher capital efficiency. Uh, if you're like a manufacturing business like Sula or Aviba, where you build your own factory from day one, that capital efficiency is going to look very different. Right? So you've got to right. peel the onion right. really bad. R&D costs and constantly,
0: we, what you have you. Yeah. Correct.
1: But we, we spend an insane amount of time looking at capital efficiency. It's easier as the company gets bigger. Uh, but at that early stage, early revenue is hard. And this is where we look at capital efficiency to date. And more importantly, if we are putting in the next million dollars, which means the total raise would have been the half a million before us and our million. So one and a half million after you take our money we need to be comfortable that before the next round of funding, you must be at an ARR of at least $3 million. If we feel our million dollars doesn't get you there, and therefore whoever looks at your business 18 or 24 months from now says, oh, you raised $1.5 million to date and you're only doing a million in revenue, you failed. Okay, so that's how we think about it. And the last bucket is businesses which are slightly larger. They're doing $5 million a year. Either we did not see them early on, or we passed in them, or we like them now. Uh, we look at everything, but their capital efficiency becomes even more important because you've been at it for five years. you raised two, or three rounds of funding. Uh, let's see what that happens. And across the board, we 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 spend too much time on on, uh, on on margins. So again, we invest only in consumer. Uh so we have a strong view of what a beverage company. Uh, what a frozen company, what a chilled company should have a gross margins, uh, and depending on whether you're direct to consumer or you're going to distributors or to retailers, you know we know what each slice is taken by the distributor and the retailer and and everything else. Right, right. right. So we need to make sure your general your gross margins are good, uh, and all all of this is before marketing spend. Right. So if you are, if you don't have enough margin. Because you don't understand it, or you're just trying to push revenue. And uh, and if your if your style of business is I'm gonna to grow top line and figure out how I make money later, is sort of scares us. And that's what happened in I think in you know 2019, 2020, 2021, we saw a lot of that because I've been doing this for 20 years, uh, and it was always very sensible, right? Most founders understood the margin. I think what happened for a short window was that non-traditional CPG investors started investing in CPG. Many of them came from venture tech uh, and they are really good at venture tech, right? And in venture tech, if you win the category, it is a winner take all or winner takes most. You know, Google is Google, Dropbox is Dropbox. There are other competitors. But if you win the category, you are going to get a disproportionate share. So you can go out and market grab uh, and sort of, reap in the benefits later. In CPG, it's very different. You will never see one brand in any category take a disproportionate share, whether it's ice cream or soft drinks or water or yogurt, it's it's the opposite. So this whole idea, I'm going to spend to get market share, uh, doesn't work. So we saw a lot of investors come into consumer goods with the right long term view of building brands, but in our opinion, the wrong playbook, not because it were being difficult, because that's that, that's worked for them in what they used to do. Uh, many of them have retreated now, aren't doing it as much. Uh, but that, that sort of put the market in a very confusing state for founders, because they would meet us, they would meet other funds, or and I would say, you know, I think you're worth three to four million, the other guys, he will say, not five or six, he said, oh, I think you're worth 20. And and then, then we would have a debate. I'm like, guys, you know, it's a good fun, great brand name, uh, they've never done consumer before. You know, we do we do consumer, they're, they're really good. They can help you with the website and optimization and they know everything on UI, uh, but they can't get you into Whole Foods or the Whole Foods equivalent or they can't get you into retail. Uh, and take your choice, right? If you're more traditional like us, come with us. Uh, if your product or service is very D2C, where you don't ever have to touch physical distribution, uh, maybe they can help you. I don't know.
0: Right, right, right. Well, and it's also so few, I mean, I've, I've, I have I've have a few thoughts on that. I'm going to sound like a broken record because I say this a lot about uh, tech firms coming into consumer. I think that what's been lost a little bit in the 2010s is for the case of, you know, DTC brands, Disney Nader brands is, um, I sometimes I feel like tech investors thought of them as technology businesses, whereas they're rather using the technology as a distribution um, for distribution as opposed to the business ultimately is a consumer product, right? It's not actually a a technology business. And so, um, and, and, and evaluate by how these brands are being valued are like a technology business, which is very, very quite different when it comes to um, the multiple um, multiples and, and and evaluations that you can achieve of tech, so kind of just reiterating what you said, um, and and totally agree that it, that it's been a um, a difficult time because what that could lead to is is many bridge rounds, down rounds, which ultimately are um, recaps. Ultimately, just are not very good for the business. So, um, so that can be pretty painful to go through if you make the wrong decision.
1: Absolutely. Uh, again, I think, and again, no one knew, right? So, I, I think it was. It's good they tried uh, because it may have worked, uh, but it isn't working. It isn't working. I think some have done a better job than others because, you know, there are some consumer brands which is tech-centric and technology can make a huge difference. Um, They're better off where gross margins are much higher and D2C maybe could work for longer. Like skincare has gross margins of 80 to 85%. Food and beverage does not. There's enough margin in 85% to sort of do more D2C. But again, going back to first principles, irrespective of how your initial go-to market is, our view is to be very successful, and our definition of very successful is, is your brand strong enough that a Nestle or a Unilever or a L'Oreal or a Mondelez or Mars would like to buy you? And they are. So I spend a lot of my time meeting global and regional CEOs of all the companies I mentioned at least once a year, if not more. Uh, And most of them know me, at least in the region personally. Um, And they want to see the, the, the fundamental belief is you need to be where your consumer is. When you're small and you are bootstrapped, you find the most capital efficient way of getting discovered. So think of any consumer brand. You create a product, it's great, or you think it's great. No one knows you exist, you're brand new, right? So you start, how do you get discovered? Okay, you can get after you get discovered. How do you get someone to try you? After someone tries you, is if they try you and they don't like you or the experience, then there's something wrong with the product market, product market fit, whatever it is. But assuming you do that well, then you need repeats. So again, you want to optimize the cost on the discovery and the trials. So maybe tech, maybe social media, maybe technology can help you. Uh, I started the first 10 years doing mainly food and beverage. And our idea was the best way to be discovered is be close to where the consumer buys that product. So we'd, we'd show up on the aisle and do sampling. So you do two things. You get discovered and you get trialed at the same time. OK, because if, you, if you're selling a new yogurt and you stand by the yogurt aisle saying, please try this yogurt. It's a Greek yogurt. And he'll say, what is Greek yogurt, man? We've been having yogurt in India for 100 centuries. You know, it's it's, it's it's an Indian thing. We're like, just try it. It's different. This is why it's different. You know, that has four grams of protein. Ours has nine grams of protein. It's a different occasion. So for Epigamia, not only did we have a new brand, we said we can't, because Indians eat yogurt three times a day with a meal. We're like, how do we sort of avoid the confusion? So we actually created a new occasion for the Indian consumer, which is if you're eating yogurt as breakfast, lunch, or dinner, which is when it's mainly consumed, unlike the West, then please buy traditional yogurt or curd we are greek yogurt it's a snack so this is what you do post run pre run after uh, after the gym pre yoga uh, so we said different occasion and its high protein and we sold the function and occasion so that the consumer wasn't confused uh, and, and it worked really well for us and most of our success stories were samplings because it, 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 it's the most cost effective way of discovery and and trial, And COVID happened. Yeah, and you, you can't sample, you can't go to a supermarket, and that's when we said, you know what, you don't have a choice, right? Social media, uh, send pamphlets, let's figure it out. When it comes to, and and, and in food and beverage, so when someone tries it, there's an instant reaction of whether I like it or not, taste wise, uh, and if they pick up a couple to buy, you know there's some traction. Uh, For some products, you can't get instant feedback, right? For example, in skincare, if we make a claim that if you wash your face every day with this, the wrinkles are going to go away and you look better, you need to wash it for a month. So we said, even if you are at the aisle and sample it, there's no way anyone's going to know if it's effective or not. Okay. So in that category, we said, you may not need to sample on-premise because that person washes his face at home, not in public, uh, uh, so then, different challenge. Maybe you get discovered offline, and you give them a small sampler. They go home, or or you do it, or you do it on social media. We don't know. So we go brand by brand. We don't have a set playbook for anything. Um, it's sometimes frustrating for the DSGCP team, especially the new guys who join us, saying, "Where's your playbook?" We don't have a playbook. It doesn't exist. Our playbook is back to the right team, be convinced about the category, and work with the founder who is very comfortable breaking the problem down into first principles and saying, for my product and my brand and my price point, how do I test it? Do I go offline first? Do I go online first? We encourage them never to go both. Some do, but our viewers do not do both. Uh, This does not include being on social media and having a website or having Instagram page. That, That you should do. But we don't think you should be doing Shopify, and doing offline at the same time because it's really hard doing one thing. We're not saying both can't work, we're like pick one because if if all we're trying to do is to get to 50 or $100,000 a month, you should be able to do it on either. So pick the one you think will get you there on the lowest cost base to test the hypothesis that people want to buy your brand.
0: Right, That that makes a lot of sense, yeah.
1: So that's a very long-winded answer to your question of what we look at because it depends on uh, the stage of the business.
0: Well, I know you don't have one playbook, so you might not like this question, but going, taking it back to when, when, um, when you invested in what became Viva and when one okay. of your um, hypothesis or inspirations was Primal Kitchen, right? Yeah. Um, um, in the West. What are some of like the nuances when you're kind of looking for inspiration? And obviously you, these are, uh, you don't always look for inspiration when it comes to, um, collaborating very early stage with founders from, you know, what's happening in the West. But what are some nuances that you have to take in consideration when it comes to the Indian market that is quite different to, um, uh, the West when you're thinking about bringing like a type of brand over to, um, to India?
1: Yeah. So we don't think of bringing a type of brand. We are asking ourselves, how does a brand, whether it's in the US or anywhere else, could be any market, how does a brand enter a, and unlike India, where many categories are are still blank, you can launch in, I mean, 20 years from now, I don't think many funds are going to say, oh, we launched India's first Greek yogurt or first cold brew coffee, because it's just never going to happen, right? Because every category is going to be filled. So that, that bit's easy. I think what we do is look around and say, how did Primal Kitchen come up in a very competitive environment with really big brands, Heinz, Unilever, everyone's got brands in that space, and charge a premium and grow really large? And if you go back, he's, it was, well, when you I, 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 I've heard too many podcasts, read too much, but it, to me, I distilled it down to two things he said there was a segment of the consumer who wants functional because for whatever reason, they follow a lifestyle. It could be I'm vegan, I'm keto, I'm whatever, right? And that demands you to change how how and when you eat. So they want the functionality element. Second big movement was consumers as they become more wealthy in any geography, uh, after they binge and become unhealthy and fat, they realize they need to become healthy and better for you. So in addition to functionality, they want products that are as natural or as clean. So no fillers, no gunk. Uh, If you make a really good product based on better for you and clean, unfortunately, it's going to cost a lot more money than a product which is made in a big factory with with a lot of sugar. Uh, And therefore, your consumer base is initially going to be small. uh, But that market who's willing to pay uh, Will lean on influencers. This, this, I'm using the word influencer prior to there being social media. These are guys who are thought leaders who would in the space. And we said that's what happened. So Primal Kitchen was one I said, you know, very competitive, similar broad space as Viba, uh, but did really well. And what did he do? He did functional and he did clean. Uh, and we took at many other brands across categories, and we said, you know what, India does not have a, a, a better for you. I'm not saying we are, we are the perfect no filler product. All we said is we want to be at a time of launch, and I, I wish I had some of my old packaging around because our packaging, you know, that company is 10 years old now, and the packaging's changed. But our initial, initial skew, which you would take if, take it for normal, we did not have a made in India fat free anything, didn't exist or we didn't have anything with only 3% fat. So our original products, and it was purely based on low fat, low sugar, no added sugar, uh, as as a hook to tell the consumer that we are better for you. Uh, And then it came to sampling. It had to be on the taste. So we looked at, sort of, look at the trends, but you have to localize it, right? Because the flavors that work in the West, since we're talking about food, may not work here. Uh, Example would be, uh, epigamia which is a lot inspired by chobani uh, but the flavors that work really well in India is yogurt is mango as opposed to strawberry so strawberry sells okay but yogurt outsells I mean mango outsells strawberry 10 is to 1 because it's the fruit that Indians prefer so you have to localize it uh, you have to sort of create an occasion when that occasion wasn't there Uh, and you need to be willing to experiment and be ready for it to be rejected.
0: That's helpful. That's helpful. Um, You know, those those are some of like, uh, as you say, like you need to, you need to localize it for the actual market that you're, that you're, uh, that you're actually doing it. Like, it reminds me, I was talking with an investor who invested in an alcohol uh, tea company, alcoholic tea company. And they said that when they were doing the, the iterations, um, they kept making it sweeter and sweeter and sweeter because they're like Americans love their sweet. So, um, so that was you know kind of localized for the uh, for the U- for the U.S. market in, in that particular example. Wrapping up here, like, what's one book that that's inspired you personally, and one book that's inspired you professionally? D- Deepak.
1: Too many books, right? Uh, I think the one that I read most often, and I, I I just recommended it to my son last week, is Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, it is very insightful. Uh, it tells you a lot about human behavior. Again, what is a consumer brand, right? You know, if we understand psychology, we would be the best marketeers, right? You know, Building a brand is all about a story. Uh, let's take for granted that the product in any category or service is the best it can be. So why does someone buy brand A over brand B over brand C? assuming all of them are identical, because that story resonates with Mike or resonates with Deepak um, on one or more pillars. And um, thinking fast and slow tells you how the brain works. It's only one element of how you make a decision, but how important psychology is in terms of any brand you build. So, you know, I always tell my team, anyone I read, read that book, uh, depending on your state of mind when you read it, the first time you, if, my the first time I read it in a neutral state of mind, it was more about economics, right? Uh, with the brand lens, I realized you know you got to do a lot of work because a consumer gives you two seconds to make a decision. So how do you understand his psyche, and how do you build a story to engage with his psyche? So that is a book I would recommend strongly from a professional point of view. Uh, Personally, is, well, I'm just looking for the book here because okay, this is a book, uh, sort of the, the books that inspire me personally change over time. Uh, but this is a book, again, it's very India specific. Uh, it's written by a friend of mine called V. Sangvi. It's called The Change, The Game Changes. Uh, and it's about transforming India, right? And the importance of having. Entrepreneurs who think against the grain, uh, who are in many ways outliers in their social group, uh, and who see a vision for the country. And again, it's a very emerging markets problem. Uh, and this is a book I often recommend. Founders I've invested in. I'm like, guys, you know, do you do not have to follow any predetermined playbook. Uh, you have 1.4 billion people. Uh, look at any data set, Uh, GDP has grown, but it's gonna grow much more exponentially. Uh, We still haven't hit that $4,000 real GDP per capita when discretionary spending will sort of take off. Um, And it's both a professional and a personal book because it tells you the hard stories, each one of the people, so what we did, is that he actually interviewed one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten? He interviewed ten different people, uh, uh, from a film director to the best-known Indian chef to a private equity professional, uh, with a view of why are you successful in what you do? Okay, so it's got a personal element of you know you really need to think again the grain. You really need to push back when everyone says it's not going to work. Uh, and, and, and it resonates with me in my most successful founders. If I think of Rajiv Salman at, 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 at Sula, if I think of uh, Rohan at Epigamia, if I think of Viraj at Viba, I, I know for a fact I've been in the room and people said, You can't make wine in India. Even if you did, no one's going to buy it. Uh, even if they did, you will never compete with anyone else, right? Same with the Greek yogurt. So you really need to be sort of strong-willed and sell that dream and build that story. So anyone who wants to do something really difficult, great book to read.
0: Okay, cool. No, really appreciate that because... You're the only person that's mentioned uh, the game changers, so you're very original, D Um I think we've had, th- uh, I think we we've had a few past guests mentioned uh, thinking uh, fast and slow, so really excited to add that to our book list. Uh, the game changers, uh, D This was so much fun. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Uh, I'm glad it it sort of happened, and I am gonna make sure I ping you before I come to LA so that I see you. Please do. You. I will. That'd be
0: great. Oh, that'd be that would that, that that'd be great. That'd be great. Um, thanks again, Deepak so much for taking the time. Thank you. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Deepak. Deepak, thanks again for coming on the show. Gabriel, thank you for joining me today. How are you?
2: Yeah, really great. Uh, Thanks for having me, Mike.
0: No, it's a really, really appreciate it. So when someone wants to invest, whether they've started their own fund, their emerging manager or they, and they have LPs or whether they're an angel investor, how do they typically get started? What should, what should they be thinking about?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, our platform makes it easy for people to pool funds together and invest in early stage startups. There's a number of reasons uh, someone would use, you know, SPVs or want to create a venture capital fund. Um, so, you know, for angels, I would say, you know, the most important part is, you know, diversifying your portfolio. So instead of, you know, putting ten checks into, you know, a single company, you can diversify by putting your eggs in various different baskets using an SPV. Um, So that's, it's it's a predominantly uh, popular use case to kind of diversify your angel investing. Um, As you know, it's highly risky asset class. So instead of being concentrated in one single asset, it uh, it allows you to invest in multiple. So that's a use case there.
0: Cool. So how, how does Vobin kind of make it easy and what and what what do you need to think about on like the admin side in order to actually set up whether you're angel investing, whether they're setting up like an SVV um, or or a fund?
2: Yeah, so you know fundraising is a pretty difficult task uh, whether you're a founder, angel, or you know a venture capitalist. Um, so with our product, you know we have all the ancillary services incorporated into the platform using a digital platform. Um, so you know we handle the legal documents to create a separate legal entity. We have a banking pl- uh- Partner that is incorporated into the dashboard will onboard the investors. You'll have real time information of how your fundraising process is going. Um, and then we'll ha- handle any administrative aspects such as reporting, uh, any taxes, and ultimately uh, the distribution at an exit scenario. So, you know, if a company goes IPO, if a company gets acquired, you know, how does that capital flow back to the investors? Um, so, that, you know, we handle all of that so our clients can focus on. You know, finding great opportunities, networking, building relationships, and building those investor relationships, which takes a lot of time and effort, uh, as anyone who's been fundraising will know.
0: Yeah what what do you feel like? You know, maybe on the SPV side of things, and also on the emerging managers' um, side, what do you think that they maybe struggle or or, or have or have like a hard time with?
2: Yeah. So I think with the angel side, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of angels will be investing directly. Um, and you know, some are unfamiliar with the concept of an SPV. Um, you know, syndicating is a concept that's used in the financial markets, whether, you know, your banks syndicating loans or banks syndicating investments. Um, it's a really, it's a really good way to, you know, share your network, uh, deal flow with your network. Um, you know, get into those really competitive deals by having those higher minimum tickets, pulling those funds together. Um, So I think, you know, for angels, the concept of SPVs and syndicating is relatively still new. And, you know, there's uh, a large market where uh, I think they would significantly benefit. Uh, You're able to also monetize off that deal flow as well. So you can charge carry, which is, you know, a a portion of the profits upon an exit scenario, or you can charge fees. So, you know, finding an opportunity trying to fundraise for the deal is a lot of hard work and sometimes being compensated for that um, does definitely help um, incentivize uh, the deal for emerging fund managers it's a really great way to start building your track record so you know when when you're talking to LPS or you know investors one of their strategies is you know um, how do I get some co-investment opportunities? Uh, or direct investments. And so building that relationship, showing your deal flow, um, allows you to build those relationships with those LPs to ultimately invest into your funds. Um, Additionally, it's a really good way to kind of show, you know, your track record of, you know, the companies that you've invested, where the ability to fundraise, getting access to those top deals, and then going out to the market and, you know, showing a track record of, you know, your resume. Um, So, it definitely paints a better picture than, you know, saying, you know, one day I want to be a VC fund manager and not having anything to back it up with.
0: I hope you all enjoyed that episode. Again, if you're really loving the podcast, highly recommend subscribing to the newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. Thanks for listening. Bye.